Welcome to the PS Younger Self podcast, where we talk to inspiring entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and creatives on how we can all crush our fears and optimize our lifestyle to live our most fulfilling lives, and always on our own terms. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of PS Younger Self. I am so, so excited to bring you guys a very special episode today. It's in partnership with an organization very dear to me. HubDot. If you're a regular listener, you might recognize the name as one of our earlier episodes was with the incredible founder, Simona Barberi, on the power of storytelling. See, Simona is like an orchestra leader who has created a global community of storytellers from all walks of life. I have never experienced a community like it before, where every member authentically shows up to be inspired and barter and make meaningful connections and totally stripped away with traditional labels and expectations. I mean, I truly inspire organizations that really foster an inclusive community that bridges gaps on a global scale. And you guys know at PS Younger Self, I am dedicated to bringing you some of the brightest thought leaders from all over the world to share actionable insights that help you optimize your life to be fulfilling and always on your own terms, right? But I also know hearing inspirational personal stories can be just as transformational in shifting our mindset to design our dream reality. So that is why today it is my honor to introduce and announce our PS Younger Self and HubDot monthly series where we will be sharing inspirational stories from the HubDot community on the last Monday of every month. But before we introduce our very special guest, a truly remarkable woman, please meet another amazing woman, Simona Barber, the founder of HubDot. Simona, welcome back. Thanks so much for being here. And so share excitement with our collaboration together. Grace, thank you so much for such a wonderful introduction. We are all amazing people. We're all amazing women with incredible stories. That's the truth. I am super, super thrilled um, to start this collaboration with PS Younger Self. As you know, as you've just said, HubDot is about celebrating stories, stories that inspire us to be better, to live more fulfilled lives, um, and stories that can have that power of shifting a mindset, making us think that anything is truly possible. Um, and so every month after we host our Hub.Life Piazza, where we will have stories shared authentically, we will have this incredible opportunity with your platform, PS Younger Self, of going a bit deeper and finding out a bit more around um, the stories of those who um, come to our community. And so I thank you so much for this opportunity and I can't wait to inspire everyone a little bit more. Oh, thank you. And you're absolutely right. We, you know, your community has such amazing stories. And today we have an incredible one that I cannot wait to share with everyone. So without further ado, 
about our honorary guest. She's a celebrated nurse who was named one of the 70 most influential nurses and midwives in the history of the National Health Service in the UK. An author and an emeritus professor of nursing at the University of West London, who through her remarkable 50-year career fought against inequalities in healthcare and became an early activist for sickle cell anemia and UK's first sickle cell nurse specialist. In 2017, she was honored with Damehood for her extraordinary services in nursing and the Mary Sequel Statue Appeal. And last year, she was awarded a Pride of Britain Lifetime Achievement Award for her work revolutionizing the sickle cell treatment in the United Kingdom. She has also published a memoir called Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union And I am truly honored to have her here with us at PS Younger Self to share her incredible, inspiring story of strength and courage and how she puts it, went from shame to becoming a dame. Please meet our very special guest, Dame Elizabeth Annie Anwu. Elizabeth, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Chris, and I'm looking forward to taking part in this very interesting program. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Elizabeth, in your memoir, you share how your childhood, growing up as mixed race in Britain, to having spent part of your childhood in care by Catholic nuns, really shaped you. I would love to start here for us to learn a little bit more about how your childhood, against all odds, including racism and even abuse, not only just carved you on this inspiring journey, but how you overcome shame. Thank you very much, Chris. If I was to explain very briefly the title of my memoirs, it will give you information about how I came into being. So Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union is because I'm actually the outcome of an affair of my mother, white, of Irish heritage, who had got a scholarship to Cambridge University to study classics just after the Second World War. And that is where she met my father, a Nigerian, who had uh, come over to study law, again at Cambridge University. Uh, They never uh, ended up marrying, although they were engaged. And therefore, I uh, grew up in England as you say, a mixed-race child. And my mother never, ever uh, gave me up for adoption or fostering. She There was never any sense from me of being rejected by my mother. However, it was extremely difficult for her to provide a home for me uh, in the early years. And that's why I was temporarily placed in the Catholic children's home run by nuns. It was expected to be just for months, if not a year or so. But it took, um, well, in fact, I didn't leave the convent until I was nine years of age. So that was my first home. And I knew no difference. So I didn't think there was anything odd about it. However, I gradually realised I was the only child of colour, as they say today. So I was the only black child in, in the convent. And that didn't actually cause many negative issues. There were some. Overall, I was very happy uh, growing up in the convent. It had a very strong Irish um, cultural influence because most of the nuns were Irish. 
So I did Irish dancing and won medals for that and <laughs> was very happy about it. And to this day, I still love um, music and songs and other aspects of Irish culture. Mm. When I was nine, my mother had by now married uh, uh, an Englishman and uh, I joined them in their home. By this time, I had uh, a, a younger brother, half-brother, and another brother was on the way. And subsequently, there would be two half-sisters. So, uh, you know, I thought this was great. I was looking forward to being part of a normal family. And to start off with, things were okay. But uh, the relationship changed gradually with my stepfather because it turned out I learned later that he was being teased by his mates down at the pub because he used to like to drink a bit. Um, what was he doing having the term half-caste, uh, half-caste child in, in the house? And this was the 1950s. It was not common to see a black child in, in this area. And uh, he took it out on me behind my mother's back by physically abusing me. And there was one particular episode which where I think he must have been drinking and it was um, very severe so much so that um, I that, that he, he hit me with such force that I flew across the room and hit my head against some metal object and bled and was pain and and my mother came rushing in from the kitchen and I think that this was the realization for her of what must have been going on before because then she called upon my grandparents, my maternal grandparents in the northwest of England to rescue me, which is what happened. And so I moved and again, at the, now at the age of 10 and a half, to stay with my grandparents. And I stayed with them until I was 16. Uh, my grandfather died after 20 months. I was actually very close to him. I got on well with my grandmother, but life got more difficult. And I wasn't aware that that, that, that she had always planned to look after me until I was 16. I, nobody, nobody thought to tell me that. So suddenly at the age of 16, I was sent back to live with my mother and stepfather. And um, I, I then didn't stay very long there. I worked in a residential school as an, a school nurse assistant until I was 18 and then went down to London to fulfil the ambition I'd always had, which was to become a nurse. I don't know whether that's enough of a potted history of what happened <laughs> to me until I was 18. <laughs> no, it is. And thank you so much for, um, you know, walking us through your, your childhood, which, you know, obviously it wasn't easy. Right. And, um, and, but it's, truly inspiring because I know that now you've become this incredible, remarkable woman who have made such strides in so many ways, but um, very specifically also in the health industry. And you mentioned that you always knew, did you say that you wanted to be a nurse or was there something that happened in your childhood that inspired you to want to become a nurse. Yes, that was certainly the case, Chris. What happened was I suffered very badly from eczema, also asthma, but it was the eczema that brought me to sick bay quite often to have my dressings changed because I had uh, affected me in the my armpits and um, 
behind my knees. And so I needed regular dressings. And there was one particular nun that I uh, always hoped would be there. And I I thought of her in my child's mind as as the white nun. Well, all the nuns were white, but all all the other nuns wore the traditional black habit. But this particular nun wore a white habit. And the reason I wanted to see her was that she was the only one that could change my dressing without causing any pain. The other the others would just tear off the the bandage. There'd be dried paste that was the treatment uh, and that would come off on the bandage tear of my skin bleed and it was just horrible but this particular nun would use what we would call distraction therapy now now Mm. bear in mind I was brought up in a convent so it was very religious quite strict quite loving but uh, very strong religious influence and yet this nun would surprise me every time I would fall for it by using words that I thought were very naughty and that religious nuns would... I mean, I grew up being told that nuns were the brides of Christ. They were very, very holy women. Mm-hmm. And yet this this nun used to use words like bottom. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. You know, and I, I would just burst out laughing. I was going to say, did you chuckle? <laughs> I would just burst out laughing because, you know, you wouldn't expect a nun to, to mm-hmm. use a word and of course as a child the word bottom is really really rude you know mm-hmm. and and of course she was doing it to distract me so that while I laughed she would very expertly take off the dressing and I wouldn't feel a thing and in a ch- growing up as a child you do remember uh the events that cause pain this caused this could cause a lot of physical pain for me and I would dread it if it was another nun that had to change the dressing But I was so attached to this particular nun and I later on discovered that she was something called a nurse. And I thought, yeah, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And I stuck to that. I didn't have any other thought of um, a career except nursing. Hey, guys, just a quick note and we'll get right back to the show. I wanted to quickly tell you guys about Hubdot Piazza happening this Wednesday, July 29th. It's where I first heard Elizabeth's inspiring story at the last HubDot Live Piazza, which is a monthly virtual event unlike any other I've been to, produced by our incredible partner, HubDot. It's where you'll be inspired by stories just like Elizabeth, told from the heart, plus have the opportunity to make new connections and even barter services from hundreds of people who joined from all over the world. I believe the last one had people from more than 40 cities globally. It's truly a unique space that I love attending every month. And every time I do, I'm always left feeling energized, inspired, and connected with amazing new friends who I wouldn't have met otherwise. So be sure to sign up. It's totally free at hubdot.com or you can find the link in the show notes that I'll be including, and I'll see you there. Now, let's get back to Elizabeth's story. And, you know, you mentioned, Elizabeth, about, you know, some of the adversities and struggles, like moving around from, uh, um, you know, the the convent to then moving back home to a stepfather who was fortunately abusive and then living with your grandparents. But so you spoke of 
shame in your book and you know your triumph over shame is really inspiring especially because we know that psychologically the impact of lifelong shame can lead to many having depression and anxiety disorders especially with this thought Elizabeth right of of I'm not good enough which correct me if I'm wrong you must have felt and you must have believed so well, it started. Um, yeah. Sorry to interrupt. The, 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 this aspect of shame is is, is crucial and, and very important, as you as you stress. That my first experience of shame actually was in the convent, and it was because okay, well, I was, okay. because I was a bedwetter, mm. and there was a, a dreadful punishment for those of us that wet the bed, which was that we would have our urine-soaked sheet draped over our bodies. We'd have to stand on a chair, and I mean, how cruel is that? I was just look, looking back, you know, I think it's just, it's not Christian, I can tell you that. Um, so, yes, the concept of shame in terms of bedwetting, but also in terms of my skin colour, because gradually I realised this, my skin colour was what was noticed by many, many people as the first thing they would comment or observe about me. And I realised it was often in a negative way, not always, but often in a negative way. So yes, I was shamed because I didn't understand why my skin colour was different to my friends in the children's home because my mother would come to visit me regularly. She's white. Why, why was my skin brown? Of course, nobody ever spoke about it, ever. Mm-hmm. So how did you then um, were able to, or do you remember, Elizabeth, a pivotal moment when you shifted out of this mindset of shame to cultivating strength and courage. I mean, you spoke of, you had, you know, friends who obviously probably, you know, didn't think about it, but, you know, through the course of growing up, was there a time where you remember that you were going to overcome and cultivate strength and courage? Yes, I do. If I give you an example of a negative aspect um, mm-hmm. in childhood again, which was I washed my face 10 times as a child to try and become white. Mm-hmm. And I had very sensitive skin, so that wasn't a good idea anyway. And I ended up in sick bay. And then if we fast forward, I would have been 22. I had now completed my nursing course in London. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved French, and I decided to live in and work in Paris for for nearly a year. And that that that's where I met a French African midwife, who was quite political with a small p, but in terms of identity and race. And she was the first person um, when I told her this story about washing my face ten times. She said, I know the very book that you need to read, uh, Elizabeth. She says, I know you like reading. And it was called Black Skin, White Mask by Franz Fanon. And it was basically, uh, his, he was a psychiatrist, a black psychiatrist. And he, he sort of analysed why, why did brown-skinned, black-skinned individuals wish to be white and the impact of the colonial era. And that book really the scales came off my eyes and I realised that I had been growing up ashamed of my skin colour and it was as though after I finished reading the book or during reading the book I thought 
Why should be I? Why should I be ashamed of my skin color? And that gradually transformed me into wanting to know more about my African heritage. Get involved with a small p in Black community politics, particularly to do with health. When I came back to London, and meet more with people who look like me, because I'd grown up in a totally white uh, environment. Now, most of the people who uh, were close to me, you know, were very kind to me. There was very little, very few negative experiences by those close to me. But by the wider group, yes, I gradually realised that to be black, to be brown skinned, wasn't you know seen as the best thing in society. And as I say, I gradually um, read much more about it, mixed with people who were politically aware. And, um, you know, when I think of Black Lives Matter today, yes, I, w- I, I went through, it, it was actually black power. It was the, uh, the, the, the sort of the end of the black power movement in, 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 in Britain that I linked up with. But it mm. really woke me up to the positive aspects of black culture and not to be ashamed of being mixed, mixed race. And eventually, when I felt at ease with both sides of my heritage, my white Irish heritage and my black Nigerian heritage, that's when I had my inner confidence and mm. was much, uh, the balance was there. It took, it took many years, but I did, I did understand when it happened. And of course, what also helped was at the age of 25, finding my father so that the whole family identity, the whole f- family jigsaw, uh, the, all the all the pieces of the puzzle were, were put into place then. Wow. I wanted to ask you about your father. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey in finding your fa- father and what was that like in, in learning about that side of your culture and background when meeting him? Well, it all happened very quickly when it did happen. Uh, up to the age of 25, uh, I had my mother's maiden name. So I didn't even know my father's surname. It was when I found out from my mother and uh, about three months later met somebody who uh, said he would try and find out where that name came from in Nigeria. He wasn't Nigerian. He was from Sierra Leone. And he said, look, it might take me some time. I'll talk. He was a barrister. He said, I teach Nigerian law students every so often. Just next time I see one of them, I'll ask. And this was just to find out, as so whereabouts in Nigeria this name came from. So that was on a Monday evening, Chris. Mm-hmm. Wednesday morning, John, my, my friend's name, was rang me at my clinic and said, I've spoken to your father. <gasps> I mean, that you, you, you just cannot... It, you can't believe. It. Wow! You know, I, friends say, you know, a film should be made. I mean, what? What? Yeah. It's just unbelievable. But it definitely happened. And so, having asked my friend on the Monday or given him my father's name, mm-hmm. I spoke to my father, who happened to be in London, on the Wednesday. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, <gasps> and I and I met him the following day. Mm-hmm. I went. Wow! So, and I got. I, I knew him for eight years before he died, and we got on so well. And oh. I got introduced to my Nigerian family. And I, the following year, I went to uh, my first visit to Nigeria. My father, by this time, had gone back to, to his home. And so I often, 
I sort of compare it a little bit. It's not quite the same story. But when President Obama went to mm-hmm. Kenya for the first time, I mean, he, he, he had known his father in childhood a little bit and then his father died. But the first time he went to his Kenyan home, home uh, met his Kenyan family, it's very similar to when I f- went to Nigeria and met my Nigerian family. A lot, a lot of interesting parallels, uh, similar experiences that he describes in um, uh, Dreams from My Father. So, um, yeah, that, that was such an important stage of my life. And there's no doubt after that, I felt much calmer. Yeah, I, I felt much happier. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And maybe whole, may I say, and, and, you know, coming full circle and not only reconnecting with your father who you hadn't, um, seen, but learning about your heritage and traveling to Nigeria and meeting your extended family there. I could only imagine, you know, this whole new world of you, a part of you that just opened up. That's right. And as I knew my father for eight years and he was often in London and I would go to Nigeria. And it was halfway through that period, four years um, into it, that I decided actually to take my father's name. I actually changed my name by deed poll. And and Mm. that was because I, I wanted to carry his surname. I was very close obviously with my mother so it was not it was nothing to do with any rejection of my mother I, nothing at all but I just felt complete and I just thought it was quite natural to, to then take his surname mm-hmm. no I can see I can see why and Elizabeth you through your course of your career in nursing you um, really became an early campaigner for social justice and for better care of treatment for sickle cell anemia, which I believe at the time there was very little or no information, I believe, on the treatment. So, and, and finding for, you know, equalities being, uh, I believe, um, the only Black, correct me if I'm wrong, first nurse. But so can you share some of your experiences and how this, your your courage in fighting for and campaigning for social justice and for sickle cell anemia. Uh, thank you, Chris. So in respect to sickle cell, uh, there, there were specialist doctors who um, were very involved in trying to raise the profile and, and improve the quality of care for patients with sickle cell anemia, but there weren't, there weren't as many as you would like. What I I was a nurse and I was a health visitor, a public health nurse. Mm-hmm. And it was when I was working as a health visitor in northwest London that I was involved with a family who had a child, a young boy with sickle cell anemia. Now, mm-hmm. I realised that the, the mother was very distraught, was wanting support. She was um, of, from Caribbean origin. I then realised I didn't know anything about sickle cell anemia. And I felt very frustrated and actually ashamed that I couldn't provide the initial support that she was looking for. So I immediately uh, wanted to learn more about the condition, but it took a few years to link into where I could do that. And I was also actually quite angry that I hadn't been prepared in nursing or in health visiting uh, 
why wasn't I taught about this condition? And when I thought more about the curriculum, actually I thought, well, we weren't really prepared for working with different diverse communities and certainly not with black families and some of the issues and the conditions that might be more uh, pertaining to, to such families. So it made me realise that uh, my nursing and health visiting education was very ethnocentric. And I was sort of gradually becoming much more aware of the society that I was living in and and the history behind that. And then I started to go to the United States for short holidays. It was very cheap to, 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 to the flights started to get very cheap. And I had my Nigerian relatives uh, out there where I could stay. And the United States really did impact me incredibly. I first went there when I, uh, in 1971, and I was quite young, you know, young adult. And mm-hmm. it, was, it, was, it was a totally different world for me. Uh, the history, the culture, the confidence that of African-Americans that I met, for example, compared, mm. and also those that they weren't that aware that there was significant black population in London, for example. So it was, it was quite interesting on the one hand thinking, well, you know, there's so much going on in the States, you know, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, how come they didn't seem to know much about, you know, <laughs> uh, similar people in, in England? So it, it, that fascinated me, to be quite honest. But I got a lot of support, a lot of friendship from from the US, and I've been forever grateful for that. It influenced me greatly, and also the the the, the remnant that it was the you know the Black Panther, the whole the, the, the confidence I came across, um, and the anger, you know, yes, yes, a lot a lot more that people wanted quite rightly, but that did influence me, and it woke me up to. Um, the real world, not my rather uh, sheltered upbringing that I had had. So um, in nursing, it made me realise, particularly because I was health visiting, uh, I could link all aspects that I was interested in health also with the black political situation and and some of the community health groups that were not you know, they were multi-ethnic, that I started to get involved in. So, yes, I felt that I really started to wake up to life when I was 22, 23, and then, you know, meeting my dad when I was 25. So that, by the time I was 27, I would say 28, I was really starting to get interested in um, sickle cell as that, that, and it was only because I went to the States and I, happened to meet up with a sickle cell nurse specialist we didn't have that specialism in in britain and i thought hold on i thought it was only doctors and you know like blood specialists and children's doctors that cared for families i and now i thought hold on i could see a role for myself working with such specialists back in london and when i came back and talked to the consultant hematologist about this she was very enamored with this idea and that's how i became the first sickle cell nurse specialist in Britain in 1979, but it was it was courtesy of the US, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's so interesting. I, I didn't expect that. How your journey to become the first sickle cell um, specialist in UK was by way of 
um, your your experience and influence in um, in the U.S. But you said you said something really profound there. Um, Elizabeth, I kind of want to hone in on that when you met this specialist in the States and then you came back to the UK and you said you saw a role for myself as in you envisioned, right? You, you, you saw something bigger for yourself. And I think that's so critical in any one of us, regardless of because I'm, I know all of us have our own adversities and we've all experienced shame or challenges or the feeling of not feeling good enough. But I think this vision and mindset, Elizabeth, that you had that can remind us that if you can envision even bigger ideas for yourself, that anything can be possible, right? That's right. And also being able to observe. I mean, mm. ha- having the opportunity to see this, as it happened, African-American sickle cell nurse specialist in Los Angeles. And there was also one in uh, San Francisco who was so supportive. I mean, they, they let me shadow them. And I immediately, mm. I thought, this is what I want to do. This is fantastic, you know. And then to go back and link up, because you can't do anything on your own, link yes. up with this uh, consultant uh, hematologist, consultant blood specialist, who was just as enthusiastic and also was in a position of authority power, if you like, to open mm. doors and to set it in motion and find funding for me to mm. um, switch from what I was doing to, 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 to doing this uh, starting up this post and it was wonderful to be pioneering and innovative and nobody else was doing it you could you really ha- had a blank piece of paper it wasn't that blank because I was borrowing a lot from the United States but in this country nobody else was doing that sort of work in nursing so it was a wonderful uh, and, and very exciting uh, time actually mm-hmm. yes I mean you you pioneered it in in the UK, and so you also said something there about um, networking to con- making connections and and asking for help. I think that's something that you know we often forget that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to ask questions, right? Um, because I think we get caught up in our in, in pride and thinking that if, or you think differently, Elizabeth, but I think that if people think that if I ask questions, if I look like I don't know everything, it's a sign of weakness. I think you're absolutely right, Chris. In fact, when I was writing my memoirs, it, it took this huge amount of reflection that you do when you do such a project to mm-hmm. realize that all through my life I've asked questions I've got into trouble for asking questions sometimes I've even been threatened with not being passed you know to be failed in as a student because I was too challenging apparently because I was wow. asking questions because I'm a very logical person and if things don't make sense I will ask questions and um, I've encouraged that and uh, tried to support people who say but you know you can get into a lot of trouble. You, and I said, there is a risk. But, you know, if you really want to learn more um, about the area that you're interested in, you have to ask questions. Maybe you have to cho- choose the right moment and the, the right person. Um, but don't, personally, I, I don't think you should be afraid of asking questions. 
as I say, learn when is the most appropriate time to do it sometimes. But um, I, lo- I love asking questions. So it's come naturally to me, to be very honest. I agree. I'm I'm with you too, Elizabeth. I um well, I grew up extremely shy, but I think asking questions is such a important way to learn, and that's how I like to continue to be inspired by other people and and sometimes asking questions that um go against the grain. Definitely. Maybe. Yeah. I want to question definitely when I um was involved with health visiting and then uh, helping to set up the sickle cell services, you had to ha- you had to ask a lot of questions, and sometimes the question would be, "Why are you saying there's no resources? Why are you mm-hmm. saying we can't do this? Why is it always no, no, no? Oh, it's going to be difficult. Why? Why is it so? Give me a reason, because I'm not well, not that I've talked like this, but internally, I wasn't just going to accept." oh, it's never been done before, it's too difficult, oh, no, yes. I don't think it's going to be possible, nobody's ever done it, and nurses don't do this, and uh-uh, mm-hmm. you know, I said, well, nurses are doing it in America, well, why can't we do it here? Mm-hmm. So always to have a, a, a thoughtful answer back, but also to make it clear you're not giving up. And by exactly. working with others within the multidisciplinary team, but also with the, the those affected by the condition, so I've always talked about having one foot within my professional base but one foot in the community and that could be with those affected by sickle cell or community groups i I, i've always been really really happy uh operating like that because it makes sense to do it that way for the family a family affected for example by sickle cell they're not worried about where somebody is based in terms of their profession they want somebody who who will be able to um, steer them, signpost them, support them, whether it's to do with hospital care, community care, school, employment, you know, they, they, they can't be bothered with all these artificial divisions that professionalism sets up sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I love what you said there also. You just gave an example, uh, Elizabeth, that you just never settled for no. No, (laughs) and that exactly, and and that takes strength and perseverance. And again, this this I think you just knew that there's always a way. There's I've got to figure it out. I'm not going to settle for this. No, and um, uh, that's truly inspiring. And so, on that note, Elizabeth, for anyone who may be faced with to them in their own world, seems like the impossible of um, pursuing their dream. Besides asking questions and observing and learning, as we, um, as you shared with us, is there anything else that you think that can help someone right now? Yes. The, the very first thing I would suggest is they've got to find allies. You can't, you mm-hmm. just, for, for all sorts of reasons, it's not good to be trying to do it on your own. Uh, first of all, you need, you need to find one or more people who can actually uh, teach you about whatever it is you, you're trying to find out, who can, as I've said, in the sense of the consultant uh, blood specialist, who can open doors to other worlds that you're either not aware of or you are not party to. Um, but you need that psychological support. And I think it's a mistake that 
we might think yeah. we can do it all on our own. That that I is just not healthy at all. And you, you just and also it's actually going back to you have to enjoy it as well. And you mm -hmm. it, I, I you have to have an inquiring mind, but I think you also have to have some humility as well because you have yes. to be aware where where you don't know. You've got to learn, you've got to be aware of is your behavior inappropriate in this setting? Uh, you, you've got to be guided as well, and how to how to learn about the culture that you're operating in requires that you find allies who really do understand that culture and can, um, you know, let you in. You know, <laughs> through, through the sort of I think it was um, James Brown who said um, that. Uh, look, you don't actually have to like me. All I'm saying is just open that door and I'll let myself in and I'll sort myself out. You know? <laughs> I, something like that, you know, keep the door ajar for me, you know. So I love I it. Put my foot in. And I think that's basically, and it's also, we have to remember, are we, are we opening the door for people? Are we letting them in? Mm. Are we enabling them? Because people, you have to remember, we have to remember how we felt. We were very shy, insecure, yes. Uh, overwhelmed by these very bright, experienced people. Um, and it could be because of our gender. It could be um, our sexual orientation. It could be our, our our ethnicity. There's all sorts of factors that cause us to lack confidence. And, you know, we just have to remember how we've overcome most of them, hopefully, so that when we see people sort of trying a similar journey, we, we have to try and remember some of the factors that are blocking them um, and, and help as, as much as we can help them. Yes. Wow, Elizabeth, thank you also for that reminder of also humility and to open the doors for others. That was such, um, you know, you said so much there, but those two really stood out for me as well too, because I think, again, you know, we can often forget the the power and of of humility because we don't know everything no. you know the, and there is this beauty in um being a student of life and knowing that you can learn so much more from others and to your other point of when you go through that evolution and transformation and remind yourself of your triumphs that you can pass that on to so many other people who, who are in the shoes that you were in. Um, that's such a great reminder. Thank you. And actually, so on that note, um, Elizabeth, I love to ask all of my guests if they can go back to your, to their younger self. And we've already learned so much from uh, your, your childhood and your career of how you became, how you overcame your shame to achieve so much. But if there's anything that you could tell your younger self, she could be at any age, Elizabeth, is there something that you would pass on to remind her to live fully in the present and on her terms? I think looking back, the biggest, I think the only thing I would have told myself, because I don't tend to mm -hmm. look back like that, but it's not to have been so shy. Mm -hmm. Because the, the thing that stopped me initially was I was so shy. I thought everybody was looking at me. I'm sure some psychologists can disentangle that. Uh, obviously, nobody was looking at me. Why, why should they be? But I, I, 
obviously felt inferior. I was, I was, I mean, so shy that I'd be sick to the stomach. And when I was a student nurse, up until maybe my second or third year, I'd go and hide. Now, I don't know what it's called in other languages, but historically it used to be called the sluice. It's where in the old days, I'm getting, I'm very old, you have to remember, uh, where where the bedpans used to be washed. You know, I mean, it was a a, a room off the ward where um, you just wash the dirty bedpans. I mean, now they're disposable. But basically, I used to go in there because people wouldn't really normally go in there unless you had to do a task. I'd go in there to hide because I was so shy. I, it got so bad that I didn't want to meet any more new patients, any more new staff. I didn't want to have to follow a doctor on his ward round. So I'd have little time out to sort of recover and go back into the, into the fray. So looking back, I think, I mean, that was obviously due to my upbringing, but uh, work on not being so shy because it blocked a lot of uh, encounters that I could have had. It blocked, it's, it, I, I just didn't introduce myself to people who I'm sure would have been very interesting people and helpful people for me to know. So, yes, I think that would be the main thing I would have said to my younger self. <laughs> yeah, get o- get over it. <laughs> get over it. Yes, yeah. I and as I mentioned to you, I was painfully shy to Elizabeth. Mm. So that is, uh, I mean, to the point where uh, this is a true story. My mother had to make friends for me in elementary school. Oh, like that's that how pain- thing. Yes. Yeah. So I would pass on a similar message. But uh, Elizabeth, you have again, accomplished so much and such an inspiring life. Is there anything else that you would love to, you know, accomplish? Or is there something that you're working on right now that you would like to share with us? No, I think it's more to do with the memoirs. I'm I'm so pleased with the impact that my memoirs have had. And Mm -hmm. Obviously, due to the impact of COVID nineteen, uh, the the talks that I'd be I was I've been invited to give all over the country have come have paused. Mm-hmm. I want to carry that on because it gives me so much joy yes. to uh, share and see the reaction and mm-hmm. answer questions and just have a discussion with people who find something about my life helpful to them gives them um, ideas on how they can cope with the challenges that they're facing. And also the pleasure that it gives people to realise that you can break through, you you can, in my case, go from shame to a dame, as, as we call this session. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not necessary that you want to, you're expecting or should expect anybody to follow in the identical footsteps that you've had. But by telling your story, people can latch on to certain aspects of it that they find helpful. And that's, you know, that I'm enjoying, I was enjoying so much. So I just like to continue that once life gets back to normal. Yes. Well, we most certainly, I know, can latch on to so much of um, your inspirational story, as I said, and I am so honored to share your story through our platform, through the collaboration with HubDot. And so I know it will be just as well received. But if so, if people wanted to get your book and uh, to read it and hear more about you. Um, Where can they get it? Just on Amazon? It's on Amazon and it's called Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union. And it's both in E, 
books, um, Kindle, for example, as well as a paperback. Amazing. And hopefully when we are back to um, seeing each other in real life and hopefully you are back on tour giving talks, is there a way that people can stay in touch with you? Are you on yes. social media? I'm, I've got a website. If okay, great. Just Google Elizabeth Annie Onwood, they'll find my website. But I, I am also on Twitter. Again, if people just type in Elizabeth Annie Onwood, um, they'll find my Twitter handle. So those that, that, those are the best two ways for people to make contact with me. Fabulous. And we will make sure to include those in the show notes so people can connect with you directly there. And the link to the um, book on Amazon as well. And it truly, truly has been an honor, Elizabeth. I um, cannot wait to also get the my hands on the book to dive even deeper and if there's anything else that we can do to help share your story and your message please um let us know thank you very much indeed chris it's been a real pleasure talking to you you're a very nice person to be interviewed by (laughs) (laughs) thank you there's one thing chris if people are interested in my musical tastes oh yes I, i was on desert island discs on the 31st of may so if people oh. can access the BBC uh, website, yes. and they, it's sitting there in their archives. That's so amazing. people might enjoy that. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Okay, so it's called, I'm not familiar with the show, so it's called Desert... Desert Island Discs. Desert Island Discs, absolutely. I will find that as well, and be sure to include that in the show notes. Thank you again, Elizabeth. Thank oh. you, Chris. It's been yes. a pleasure. And thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of P.S. Younger Self. It really means a lot to me that you're spending your time with me. So if you like this episode, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about anywhere you listen to your podcast. Leave me a review. Tell me what you think. It really helps me get more valuable content to you guys. So until next time, take care and remember to always live your life on your own terms.